I feel compelled to say something about the Supreme Court decision that was made this week. Um, some people think I should spend the whole sermon time on that topic, but I'm not going to do that. That's something much more important to talk about. This is not a time to gloat if the Supreme Court uh, decision gave you a sense of thrill and victory and satisfaction. Nor is it a time to celebrate. I understand both of those. Realize that God calls you and me to be lights in a dark world. Make your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. That, that's always our ambition. That's what I want to preach about in just a minute. But there are hundreds, thousands, millions of people today who are angry, hurt, upset, disappointed, frustrated. And they don't need our gloating. They don't need our victory. They need our love, our compassion, and our care. Abortion has not ended. Women will still be free to kill their babies. Planned Parenthood in the state of California is ramping up hiring more people in anticipation of people coming to California from the states that will choose to not permit abortions. One of the largest sporting goods chains in our country has announced to their employees that they'll give up to $4,000 to any employee that needs to leave the state they're in to go to a state to have an abortion. Abortion is not over and done with. The great need in our country is not to get the right men and women sitting on the Supreme Court. That's not the big need in our country. The big need in our country is not to have the right guy behind the desk at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. The great need in our country is for people to have their hearts changed by the grace of God, the love of God, and the cross of Jesus. That's the great need in this country. So don't get distracted by all this stuff. I picked up the newspaper yesterday, and the whole, you know, there's the front section, and then there's the sports section, right? And so the front section, every single article in that whole section of my newspaper was related to the Supreme Court's decision. Every single article. Thankfully, there was an article in the sports page about the Dodgers winning again, so there was good news. But I, I just feel compelled to remind you, our mission is to introduce people to Jesus. The great need is for heart change. The ruling of the Supreme Court will not change the hearts of men and women in this country. The only thing that's going to change the hearts of men and women in this country is Jesus. And so I, I just feel compelled to, to say that. Having said that, I'm done. No, I'm not done so you can go home. Don't think that. I have to tell you that something you don't know about me is that I was born with a very serious birth defect. Uh, some of you may be conscious of this. Most of you probably not. But it's pretty serious. Um, can be very debilitating. Um, damages uh, my relationships with people. 
um, it's, it's really quite serious. Because I was born with a need and a drive to please other people. I was born with a need for recognition. I was a need for people's acceptance and love. And it started off pretty simple. I'm a firstborn, so I had my parents to myself for 13 months before my youngest, my next brother was born. And so it started with mom and dad wanting to please them, right? Then I wanted to please teachers. Then I wanted to please employers. And of course, all the way along that journey, I've wanted to please people, my peers, my friends, wanting to be accepted, loved, liked. Pleasing people was my birth defect. I don't know if any of the rest of you have been affected by that or not in your life. But I've been thinking about this over the course of many weeks. And uh, the good news is there's a cure to this birth defect. And the cure is discovering how to please God and to make that the priority instead of pleasing people. And I started thinking about this just recently because I posted something on Facebook, dangerous place if you like to be liked and accepted and loved, you know. You, I got one guy that just is after me every single day, but that's another story. Um, so on Facebook, I posted something about fearing God. The Bible talks about fearing God, right? So my friend Fred read this post, and Fred says, No! We're not supposed to fear God. We're supposed to do what? Love God. Is that true? Are we supposed to love God? Absolutely, yeah. Love the Lord your God how? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the Bible also talks about fearing God. And so I shared with Fred my definition of fearing God. And this is kind of where things kind of took off, at least in my, between my ears and my head, is I told Fred that to fear God doesn't mean you're cowering in terror that he's going to zap you, right? To fear God means I hold him in reverence. I stand in awe of him. We just sang that awesome hymn that I've loved for 72 years. How great thou art. We hold our... Heavenly Father, our God, in awe and reverence. And so my definition of fearing God, if you're a note taker, write this down, because I think it's brilliant. My definition of fearing God is, I dread to offend Him, and I'm eager to please Him. Because I hold Him in raw, awe, raw, awe and reverence, I want to please Him. And so I started on this road of discovery, and I hope to have a chance to share most of what I've discovered with you. I doubt it. Um, but I want you to come with me this morning uh, briefly to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because this, this was the jumping off point for me in this journey, because I'm asking myself, so... If fearing God is I dread to offend Him, I'm eager, anxious to please Him, wouldn't it be important for me to discover what is it that pleases God? What is it in your life and what is it in my life that gives God pleasure? What is it that pleases God? 
And so, as you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's kind of a fascinating chapter. Because the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, not only was he a missionary involved in proclaiming the gospel and, and seeing churches begun, but he also worked to support himself, right? And his job, his career was tent making. And so as chapter 5 opens, the Apostle Paul uses tents as a metaphor for death. And he says, basically, there's coming a time in each of our lives. This is Roy's paraphrase to kind of get to where I want to go. There's coming a time in each of our lives where we're going to fold up this old tent, this body. We're going to fold up this old tent and put it away. There's a time coming where, where, we're, going to, where we're going to do that. And so it's in this conversation where we have that, that great phrase that uh, we've often heard, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, We're of good courage. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore also, pay attention now, this is, this is the key phrase right here. Therefore also, we have it as our ambition whether at home or absent, to do what? Be pleasing to Him. What does that word ambition suggest to you? What is that? I heard, I heard the word I'm looking for. Aiming for something. What's the target? What are you aiming at? Please, God. If it's your ambition, it's what you're aiming at. It's what your focus is. It's the main thing. If you have the old King James translation, it's kind of fascinating. It says we labor to be pleasing to God. It's what we're working at it. And so, in this context of making it my aim, my focus, my goal to be pleasing to God, Paul goes on. And he talks about an event that's going to take place in the future called the Bema Seat Judgment. Where all of us who are followers of Jesus are going to appear not to be judged for sin. That was taken care of already at the cross. Thank you. But there's going to be apparently this time of Bama Seat judgment where there's going to be rewards. And so Paul uses another metaphor. He shifts from the metaphor of the tents being folded up and put away. And he shifts now to a metaphor, this picture of the Olympic Games where there's an elevated area where the, the victors in the games and the races are given their awards, a, a laurel wreath that would be placed on their head or whatever. And it's in that, that Bema Seat judgment that the rewards are passed out. And so, as I, as I was thinking about this, my realization is, Lord, what needs to happen in my life and what needs to happen in each of your lives is that we discover the high value of living my life in a way that pleases God rather than pleasing people. Because ultimately, when it's all said and done, what is it that I want to hear God say to me? When it's all said and done, my tent's folded up and put away, what is it I want to hear God say? Well done, good and faithful servant. And so I'm on this journey to discover what does it mean? What does it mean? To please God. How do, how do I do that? 
And sadly, I, I found uh, 12 ways. And so the bad news is I've got 12 points. The good news is whoever built this building put a clock there in front of me. I know I ignored it last week. I'll try not to do that today. But there's some very simple, easily understood things that we just need to be reminded. These, these are things that please God. So the first thing on my list is ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to help you to make that your focus, your aim, and your goal. Ask the Lord. Is that a prayer God wants to answer? Paul prayed twice in the New Testament for people to live lives pleasing to the Lord. And so um, in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verses 20 to 21, he says, Now the God of peace who brought us up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. It is in the heart of God to work in you and in your heart to please him. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul has a great prayer in verses 9 to... Or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. Paul has a great prayer in verses 9 to 12, where he talks about us maturing to the fullness of what God wants for us in our lives. And it's in the context of that prayer he prays again that the believers in the city of Colossae, in their walk with Jesus, that they would discover ways to be pleasing to the Lord. So if Paul had two prayers in the New Testament that God would help people to live lives that are pleasing to him, guess what? That's a prayer I can pray to. Ask the Lord to help you do that. It's not normal. It's not natural. I have this birth defect. I fully recognize it. I want people to like me and accept me and recognize me. And I I, I need to renounce that <laughs> say Lord I, I, I just need to please you he's the audience of one and whether I stand here on Sunday morning or whether I'm with our team in Boyle Heights wherever I am I have an audience of one and you do too to please him so God, that's a prayer God wants to answer the second thing that um, I discovered that wasn't totally new to me, but again, a good reminder. Give yourself fully to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Therefore, brethren, because of God's mercies, all of what's happened in Romans chapters 1 through 11, I was a sinner. Jesus died for me. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus has redeemed and ransomed me and made me his child. Therefore, what? Present your body, he says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. That word acceptable is the same word that was in the other passage, well-pleasing. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Lord is pleased when I am fully, totally, completely His. 
The implication of that for me is, so is the Lord less than pleased when I'm content to kind of coast through, content to kind of partially be in? You know, in poker, there's the idea of all in. I know none of you play poker. I totally get that. But there's this concept in poker where you just push all your chips in the middle of the table. This is totally foreign to most of you, I know. Is to me too, but it's a good illustration. Uh, <laughs> but you're playing poker and you go all in. Totally committed. Totally committed. This same concept of being totally committed, I've discovered as I watch bicycle races, the, the commentators in the race are talking about the riders out in front. Typically in the bicycle race, you've got a group called the breakaway. There's two, three, six, eight out in front. They might be a minute ahead, three minutes ahead, and then there's the peloton, everybody else. And they comment, these people are all in. You can tell they're, they're, they're going for it all. That pleases God. Tuesday, a couple of weeks ago, our Iron Men on Tuesday nights studied the life of one of my heroes in the Old Testament. And Caleb had a life that was marked by a phrase that was used to describe him over and over again. You all recognize the name Caleb, right? When Moses was ready to take the children of Israel into the Promised Land, he chose one man from each of the twelve tribes to go in as spies and check out the land. Go in, tell us what you find, bring back a report. Ten of those twelve dudes came back and what they say? Oh, it's a scary place. There's walled, fortified cities. And there's giants in the land. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And Caleb and Joshua came back and they said what? Yep, there's walled cities. Yep, giants in the land. But guess what? God's got this. God's bigger. God's better. Can we just sing a song about that? And so the people responded to Joshua and Caleb's report. How? They want to stone them. And all through Caleb's life, this phrase followed him. I'm going to test the guys that are coming on Tuesday night. What is the phrase that characterized Caleb's life? He fully followed the Lord. Wholeheartedly followed the Lord. And that phrase follows him all the way through the Scriptures. He followed the Lord fully. He followed the Lord wholeheartedly. And you come to the end of Caleb's life. And how old is he? Eighty-five. Anybody close to eighty-five here? Huh? A couple of you? Um, we're sneaking up on it, Tom. At the end of Caleb's life, he's 85, and he says, I'm still as strong as I was when I was only 40. And he says to Joshua, I want you to give me that hill country where the giants live. And so Caleb asked for the most difficult portion of the entire land that would be given to him and to his family. I'm going to go in there and conquer that land. He followed the Lord fully. God is pleased with you and me when we're fully committed. No regrets, no reserves, no holdouts. There's a little chorus we used to sing years ago. 
I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not. I'm yours, Lord. And I can't remember the rest of it. That's why I wrote it down. Try me now and see. See if I can be completely yours. Try me. What does that suggest? God's going to bring something into your life and into my life to find out whether or not you're like Caleb, following him fully. Has God ever done that in your life? Probably. You may not have recognized that that's what he was up to. And so, ask the Lord to help you live a life that pleases Him. That's a prayer He wants to answer. And then make sure, make sure, present yourself a living sacrifice, wholly pleasing to the Lord. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's that happen? You know the problem with living sacrifices, right? They crawl off of the altar. The challenge is to climb onto the altar and sacrifice and say, Lord, I'm yours. All that I am, all that I got, I'm yours. And then stay there, regardless of what comes, what happens. The third thought, as I explored this idea of what does it mean to please God, Telling others about Jesus' love for them pleases God. If I want God to be pleased with my life, there needs to be a faithfulness in my life of telling people about God's love. By the way, I forgot a whole paragraph to back up. When I talk about living a life that pleases God, I need to back up and say this. God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. There is not one single thing that you can do to make God love you more or love you less. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of money you can spend. There is nothing you can do to cause God to love you more or love you less. God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. The Scripture says He has loved us with an everlasting love. How long does that last? Forever. And then... In Romans 8, Paul says, What can separate us from the love of God? And Tom just summarized four verses in one word. Nada. Thank you, Tom. I don't need to quote that verse. Um, But I will anyway. In in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can distress, troubles, famine, death, No. He says, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth, life nor death, things present, things to come, angels, principalities and powers, 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So I want you to repeat this with me. God loves me, and there's nothing I can do about it. Okay, so understand that. But in this journey of living a life with my Savior who loves me, the Scriptures talk to me about living a life that pleases Him. It tells me I can ask Him to give me that kind of a life to help me do which isn't natural and normal for me. I can make of my life a living sacrifice. I'm committed to wholly, totally following Him. And then in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, He tells me that when I tell others about Jesus' love, that it pleases God. That shouldn't be a surprise, right? That's no, that's no big shock. But in, Col- in Colossians 1, oh, where's my notes? Verses 17 to 21. For the word of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. When I talk about the cross to someone that doesn't know Jesus, isn't interested in him, it's nonsense. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God is pleased. (laughs) I just love this thought. God is pleased when that foolish message is proclaimed. God is pleased. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, whether it's in Africa or Japan or Norwalk or during baptism on a Sunday morning in June, when the gospel is being proclaimed, guess what? God's being pleased. And it's our great privilege to tell people how they can be reconciled to God. Yesterday, my friend Phil Bryant was here training and teaching the young people that are part of the travel team that uh, Tim's uh, organizing and helping lead and administrate this next few weeks. Um, He said something that really caught me by kind of off guard a little bit. Um, I had to think about it for a while because I'm not sure I got this totally correct, Tim, because it really sent me off in the corner to think and I missed all a lot more of what he said. Um, does that happen to you on Sunday morning when, when Oscar and I are up here talking and you find your mind, you grab onto something? Hopefully it's something we said and not, you know, a Dodger game or something else that you're thinking about. But you just kind of, you wander off and think about that for a while. Is that okay? That's absolutely okay. Um, anyway, that's what happened to me. And one of the things that um, Phil was saying was, I'm going to have to paraphrase this, but he said, Jesus didn't primarily go to the cross so you could go to heaven. That's not the message. If you read your Bible, Jesus went to the cross to accomplish what? Reconciliation between you and your Heavenly Father. It resonated with me because of my message last week about the forgiving Father and His two prodigal sons in Luke 15. 
Because the whole point of the cross, the whole point of Jesus' death is we're at odds with God. We're enemies of God. We're hostile to God. And the whole point of Jesus' death on the cross is now there's a pathway to harmony. There's a pathway back to relationship with God. And, and you and I have the great privilege of proclaiming that message. And, and when we do, guess what? God is pleased. God is pleased. I have to think about that a little bit. God's pleased when I proclaim the truth of that foolish, foolish message. Um, the fourth thing on my list is God is pleased when I trust Him. Hebrews 11.6, that great, he, he, the great hall of faith, right, in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, But without faith, it is impossible to do what? Please God. And it's easy to think of that statement as, re, as referring to saving faith. It's when I come to faith and I put my faith and my trust in Jesus as Savior... That's what it's talking about. It's easy to read that and come to that conclusion. And I wouldn't say it has nothing to do with that. But what does the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 talk about? Faith, thank you. But what is it describing about faith? It describes how people live their lives based on faith. So Abraham is held up as this great model of faith. And what it describes about him is what? God says, I'm going to show you a land you've never seen, you don't know anything about. Come and follow me. We're going there. And Abraham did what? Follow God. That's faith. No idea where he was going. No idea what was there. And then Sarah, she's on that list. And here's a 90-year-old woman and God says to her, And the scripture says she responded, how? She laughed. That's why she na- they named their little boy Isaac. Laughter. My next door neighbor's Isaac. When they moved in a few months ago, I said, oh, do you know what your name means? No. I said, Isaac means laughter. His wife thought that was great. Sarah's faith was in spite of her laughter. Guess what? She believed God. So it wasn't just something that happened between her ears. There was action involved, which I think is where we're going to go in the book of James the next, next couple of months. And so you go through there and Moses, the faith of Moses is captured in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, what did Moses do that was so big? What was the big deal in Moses' faith? Well, you want to walk forward and talk about the ten plagues. You want to walk forward and talk about the Red Sea. You want to walk forward and talk about going 40 years in the wilderness? Hebrews chapter 11 highlights what? Moses, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. That's faith. Son of Pharaoh's daughter. Next in line to be Pharaoh. And Moses walked away from that. That's faith. And so, Hebrews 11.6 tells me, 
when I trust God with the circumstances in my life, He's pleased. So, when I open up the statement for the last quarter for my IRA, And I discover that my IRA has lost $9,000. How do I respond? Oh no! What's going to happen to me? No, that's not faith. What happens when... You read in the newspaper, there's going to be a food shortage. Diesel prices are going so high that truck drivers are not going to be able to deliver food. Or toilet paper. (laughs) Are there any promises in the Bible that you can grab a hold of in times like that? Boxcar loads. My God will supply your needs, all your needs, according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is a promise that God gives to you and to me. What does faith do with that promise? You race off to the nearest Stater brothers and buy everything in the place. And I think of of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount says, Take no thought for what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Check out the lilies of the field, what God's done for them. Oh, and by the way, if a sparrow falls... God knows about it. God cares about it. And guess what? What's the next phrase there? You are of more worth, more value than a sparrow. Now that's a message Peter does not want to hear. But that's truth from your Bible. You are more valuable than the sparrow that falls. And God knows about that and cares about that. So God is pleased when the circumstances of my life are such that in spite of bad news, difficult circumstances, I trust Him. My faith and trust please my Heavenly Father. So whether you get bad news health-wise, finance-wise, or otherwise, our response should always be what? Lord, you're in charge. You're in control. 
Those IRA monies are monies you gave to me. They're yours. And if you choose to take them all away, or maybe just part of them away, um, God's pleased when I trust Him. Oh, I've only got six more, seven more. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 that God's pleased when I share out of my resources that He's entrusted to me and I share it with others. That pleases God. Um, In that great chapter in Philippians 4 where Paul is thanking the Philippians for their gifts to help him in ministry, he says... um, he says he talks there about being content in all things. He's learned how to abound, how to be abased. Whatever the circumstances of life, he said, I rejoice. He says, but I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant, a fragrant aroma, an accept, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so when I share... Out of what God has entrusted to me, the resources He's placed into my hands. When I share those things, He is well pleased with me. And you can think about that in multiple levels. Um, He's pleased when I share out of my resources to support my friends that are missionaries around the world. He's pleased with that. He's pleased when I share out of my resources to to support and help the local church that I'm a member and a part of. I think even beyond that, he's pleased when I take time on one of my bike rides and I ride past somebody who's sitting on the side of the side of the road with their bike flipped upside down, the wheel off, and they're standing looking at it like this. And I say to them, are you okay? Do you need help? And they say, I'm not okay. I don't have, and you fill in the blank with a bunch of stuff they don't have that I always have. Um, and I stop. And do you, do you have an inner tube to replace the flat? Uh, no, I don't have an inner tube. Do you, you have a pump to inflate a tube if I gave you one? No, I don't have a pump to inflate a tube if you gave me one. Do you have tire levers to take the tire off of the bike to get the tube out to put in the tube that I'm going to... No, I don't have those either. Okay, now I know where we are. So I'm pulling out an extra tube. I'm pulling out my pump. I'm pulling out my tire levers. I'm ready to change the tire for them. Well, (laughs) what Roy prefers to do is to teach them how to change their own tire. But that's another story. But when I take time half an hour sometimes just to share out of my resources I think God's pleased with that and learning to share out of what God has entrusted to us and it's hard to do that when you keep reading in the newspaper there's a recession coming Steve it's going to get really bad you think gas is bad now at over $6 a gallon just wait another month Learning to share is hard for me. 
And sadly for me, I'm married to a woman whose father was super generous, super gracious, always giving, giving, giving. And my father wasn't like that at all. I told you last, last week my, my father would be described as one of those people that squeaks when he walks, right? He's really tight. And uh, so God gave me a wife who's the daughter of a man who is incredibly generous. And that's been a, at times that's been a conflict point in our marriage. But learning to give, learning to share. Everything that God has placed into your hands isn't yours. It's His. And I'm simply a steward. Lord, how how can I best use these resources for you? And Lord, if you choose to take away nine grand of my resources, oh well. Is he capable of replacing that? And certainly is. God's well pleased when when I learn to share my resources. And I guess I'd have to say then he's not very well pleased with me when I'm tight fisted with it, right? Okay, I've only got six more and we're going to not do those. If you have interest in the other passages and what I have in my notes, email me, text me, see me. I'll share them with you. Some of you are note takers. I know that's important to you. So my question this morning for you is this. Got ambition? Ron says my grammar isn't very good, but that's the contemporary way to ask the question. Got ambition? You know, the culture you and I live in, the culture that wants to squeeze this into its mold, the culture that Paul warns us about in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed, the culture around us wants to make us ambitious toward what kinds of stuff? Ambitious for money, ambition for, uh, ambitious for success, wealth, fame, a, a bunch of stuff. Paul says, make it your aim, make it your goal, make it your focus to do one thing. Make the main thing in your life to please God. And so then I ask myself the question, so how am I doing with that thing of pleasing God? If I were to try to evaluate that on a scale of 1 to 10, and 10 means I'm just knocking it out of the park and one means I'm really bad what kind of a score would I give myself what kind of a score would you give yourself this morning and I guess if you're like me you would say okay here's where I would place myself and there's room for improvement that's great news because I just gave you several things you can do to improve got ambition And maybe one of the things that I've suggested this morning would be a place to start for you. What's the one thing that you could do this week in this journey of pleasing God? Just one thing. So here's my prayer that I want you to pray with me. I'm going to read it first and then we'll repeat it together. Lord, I renounce my desire for human praise, for the approval of my peers, the need for public recognition. I deliberately put these aside today 
content to hear you whisper, Well done, my faithful servant. So I want you to repeat after me. Lord, I denounce my desire for human praise, for the approval of my peers, the need for public recognition. I deliberately put these aside, content to hear you whisper, well done, my faithful servant. Lord, make that truly, honestly, the prayer of our hearts this morning. We are so wired, so programmed to please people. We want to be liked. We want to be loved. We want to be recognized. And maybe there's a place for that at some level in each of our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would speak into each of our hearts this morning with this simple, simple, simple reminder that we're to live lives that are pleasing to you. That needs to be our ambition, our aim, our goal. Lord, help me, help my brothers and sisters here to please you with how we choose to live our lives. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here that's yet come to know Jesus in a personal way, yet to come to be reconciled to Father God through His Son Jesus, might that one discover this morning your love and your desire that they would be reconciled to you in harmony with you, living a life pleasing to you. Lord, speak into each of our hearts, into each of our lives. Might we please you in all that we do, in all that we say. And thank you for answering that prayer, because I know that's your heart's desire too, that I would live my life that way. Thank you for helping me to live a life that pleases you. Thank you for doing that in Jesus' name. Amen.